Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and this is my very first audio reading of my newsletter, Maybe Baby. Um, I've had some people asking me about recordings, and um, it's something that I've been curious about doing. Um, I tried it with a couple other newsletters, and it felt sort of corny to me. I don't know. (laughs) Hearing yourself read your own words um, is kind of cringy, but it is something that um, a lot of people have asked for and something that I want to offer because I do think that it's fun to offer a little extra context, um, which I do plan to do with these audio recordings. So um, I'm excited to give it a try, see what you all think. Um, super open to feedback. The one caveat is I am um, recording this in my parents' closet. I am two inches away from six different pairs of my dad's pants, which is definitely a first. And um I actually had planned to record these um, using Avi's audio equipment, which we have a little bit of back at our apartment. Um, But, you know, I decided to wait until I was 3,000 miles away from that. And um, now all I have access to is my iPhone. So um, trust that in future recordings it will sound better. For now, um, just pretend that we're on the phone and um, hopefully that will take care of um, the super shitty quality. Um, Okay, today I'm going to be reading the um, newsletter that I published on July 5th, the last one, my 13th, and it's called um, Notes on a Sad Phone Call. Um, I I really struggled to write this newsletter. Um, I knew I wanted to talk about my sister leaving New York, and I knew I wanted to talk about kind of the mythology around leaving New York and coming to New York and the relationship between the two, but... I wasn't totally clear on what I thought about all of it or how I felt, and um, I found the writing experience pretty painful. I I wrote probably 10 times as much as I ended up publishing, and um, it ended up being one of my shorter newsletters, ironically, even though it took me much longer to get there. So uh, yeah, we'll um, see how it goes, and um, let me know what you think. Notes on a sad phone call. Maybe baby number 13. Good morning. It's raining in New York right now. A few minutes ago, I heard a clap of thunder so loud it reminded me of a Universal Studios exhibit I went to in 1998 for the movie Twister. There were fake high winds and thunder, and I remember being impressed by the idea of living through dramatic weather like that, which rarely came to my room temp California hometown. I still think it's impressive, actually. Sometimes I run to the window like a kid on Christmas morning if the weather changes fast enough. A place as an idea. One day in May, my sister Kelly called me crying. First she said hi. Then she said, I don't know how to tell you this. I'd answered the phone reclined on the couch. And then I was sitting up so straight, Avi looked at me in alarm. What is it? I asked, my mind racing. She was silent for a while. We're leaving New York, she finally said. We're moving. And then my whole body unclenched. It took a few seconds for her news to register as bad, because no one was dead or on the brink of it, and then it finally sunk in as the news I've been dreading for years. The end of an era that always seemed too good to last. All three Nauman kids in New York, family dinner every Sunday, me and Andy watching our nieces grow up in Brooklyn in real time. How had we all ended up here, 3,000 miles away from where we fought over the remote for 18 years? I know we'd done it on purpose, followed each other everywhere, maintain the role of best friend in each other's lives just in case any of us forgot who we used to be. 
but it always felt unlikely somehow, and in that way, doomed. Fuck COVID, my brother texted me the next day. He meant it in a general and a specific sense. It was why so many people were dying, why everyone was depressed and unemployed, and why, after five years, our sister was finally done. She and her husband Matt had been on the fence about staying since having kids. And then the pandemic eradicated the pro list and only left the cons. Two full-time jobs and no childcare. Expensive rent and no city to justify it. Trains unsafe for their high-risk daughters and no car to use instead. Denver could give them the opposite of all of that, especially help from extended family. I understood it right away, which is why there was nothing for Kelly or me to do on the phone except cry at each other. It wasn't a tragedy, just more sadness and upheaval and a sea of it. She felt heartbroken. I felt gutted. So many things felt over. The seeds of New York doubt started sprouting sometime in April, and they weren't just my sisters. One friend went back to her parents' house in the suburbs, and after years of struggling to make rent in Brooklyn, started considering whether she should even come back. Another lost his Greenpoint barbershop and decided to move to rural Oregon. Others have been more passive about it, wondering if maybe their time has been up for a while and they've just been too busy to notice. When I first heard people talking like this, I panicked a little. I wanted everybody to tread carefully, to not judge a place when it's down, to remember why they love it here, even if they didn't. I felt a little like a drunk when his friend says no to another drink, worried the good time would be revealed as a fantasy, a mere delay of something depressing and true. But I don't really think that about New York, that it's just a fantasy. If anything, I understand that what we project onto it is only a starting point for what makes it special, or any place special. At a certain point, you have to construct a more grounded proposition for living here, one that accounts for the material conditions of your life. And if quarantine has finally given you the space and time to do that, and your conclusion is that it doesn't amount to a life well lived, I can both respect that and understand it has nothing to do with my decision to stay, even if it breaks my heart a little. I suppose this process can apply to anything in life, whether it's a city or a religion or a relationship. At some point, your idea of a thing has to make way for reality, and avoidance can only get you as far as you can distract yourself. I think this is what's happening in America, too. A nationwide shutdown finally gave people a minute to realize the extent to which they've been lied to, that it's not actually the land of equal opportunity, that the system is in fact stacked against such a thing, and that the pursuit of stability in the U.S. is actually more depressing than motivating. Or maybe it finally just gave us the time and energy to shout about it in the streets. Either way, the result is the same. Clarity about each of our roles in the system. The very thing workism and capitalism are designed to obscure. There will probably always be a part of me that wants everyone to see New York for all its non-ideological merits, because I want myself to see it that way, which in itself is ideological. This is the comedy of wanting to love anything. You risk becoming an inadvertent salesperson, more committed to the pitch than your lived experience. But this pause has helped me back away from that instinct, to assess my commitment to the city and my life more authentically, and as, as a result, I feel more confident in both. Of all the havoc this pandemic has wrought, these kinds of reality checks might be some of the most useful. Ideas are important, but they also aren't enough. Better for all of us to get honest now about why we're living the way we are. A month after my sister called me, she was gone. The day she left New York, I sat on the floor of her empty apartment and tried to make it mean something. I imagined the room filled with furniture, all of us draped across it on a Saturday morning, my nieces Ruby and Nora running around with household items they'd mistaken for toys. 
but some part of me already felt closed off. Another year, another month, I might have spent an hour sobbing on the floor, torturing myself with memories and visions of a future I knew would never come. Instead, I took it in as it was, recognized things were changing, then walked home. 15 things I consumed this week. I've been considering how to translate this particular section to audio since it's pretty link heavy and um, occasionally visual heavy and it's, it's a little bit sparse to read. So I think what I'm going to do is just kind of as I go through explain a little bit about why I picked the thing and um, maybe even talk about it a little bit just ad lib here and there. So we'll see how that works. So number one is Joan Didion's famous essay about leaving New York, Goodbye to All That. Um, I initially looked up the essay because I, I wanted to quote a line from it um, about how it's possible to stay too long at the fair. Um, it was a line where she was basically explaining that New York was a fantasy that um, ultimately didn't live up to itself, and that was why she was leaving. Or at least it didn't live up to her fantasy. So um, I knew I kind of wanted to evoke that um, emotion, but I couldn't remember how she put it. And I ended up just getting lost in the piece anyway and remembering why I was so impressed with Joan Didion's writing. Um, I'm not a, a, a Didion expert or anything. I haven't even read all her work. But I remember reading this essay pretty early on and um, being really taken with her prose. And it's, it's a really good one if you haven't read it. Um, one thing that I found kind of funny is, um, Joan Didion ended up moving back to New York in the late eighties and she's been here, um, for 30 years now. And, um, you know, the, the kind of arc that I applied to that true or not is that, you know, in her twenties, the fantasy died, but later she kind of came to love to New York or came to love New York for maybe more substantial and personal reasons that that felt less um, tied to um, kind of an idea. So it, it ended up leading me down a path that, that helped me develop my own thinking, but I didn't really end up quoting her actual piece. Okay. Number two was a piece by Jeremy Gordon, who's a writer I like. Um, he used to work at The Outline, uh, which is one of my favorite culture sites, and it folded in the beginning of the pandemic. And he wrote a little retrospective on um, kind of what it meant to work for a site that defied definition and why a site like that can't really thrive in modern media. So I found it really interesting and, you know, I loved the outline and when it folded, I was really sad and it, I ended up doing a long tweet thread that I think I linked at one point in the newsletter about why, um, a lot of media was suffering or really all of media was suffering, um, even though readership and clicks were up um, now that everybody was home and, and really online. And um, obviously these factors are pretty divorced. Uh, like, you know, a, reader sh a readership is, is not really a great signal for financial viability um, or, is not, or not as much of one as you would think. Um, and this is because um, really consumers are not the products um, or sorry, the writing is not the product for consumers. It's really the eyes of the consumers are the product for the brands. So th that probably sounds a little uh, vague, but um, you know, if you're if you're someone who who thinks about media and likes um, kind of examining what's gone wrong with it, then this might be an interesting piece to read. 
Number three, the pleasure of a house hoodie, which is simply a zip-up hoodie you only wear around the house. The fact that it zips is crucial. A pullover is too much of a commitment. Number four is a tattoo, and it'd be kind of absurd for me to explain it, so if you're interested in seeing it, um, it's just a little a man in a box, and I love it. Number five, the phrase diversifies the gentry and gentrifies diversity, as an astute critique of Hamilton. I actually watched Hamilton this last weekend, um, and I, uh, I kind of went into it expecting to hate it, and... I do regret to say I did mostly hate it. Um, <laughs> hate is maybe too strong of a word, but I did. I really took issue with some of the historical inaccuracies that I found to be kind of dangerous, um, almost propaganda. And, um, you know, I, I thought that, that it, the whole time I just thought about kind of the fake American mythology and the story they were trying to tell about good versus evil and kind of how they were recasting... Um, who I see as kind of more oppressive uh, <clears throat> figures in the founding of America as the oppressed. And I didn't appreciate it. That said, I really do um, respect the kind of artistic feat of it. And I, I did enjoy it from from that perspective. I thought it was pretty, you know, wild that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda <clears throat> wrote that entire thing. It's, it's pretty um, impressive. Number six. Connie Wang's piece titled The Grateful to Be Here Generation Has Some Apologizing to Do, which puts satisfying clear words to an amorphous dying movement. Um, I always really appreciated Connie Wang's writing. It's really thoughtful and um, she covers so many different topics, but um, we're kind of from a similar generation and I think I really appreciated the way that she um, explained what's, what's, what I think is kind of amounting to a ideological shift wherein... Um, the kind of mainstream ideas are changing from working within a system to completely dismantling it. So kind of if you take the kind of lean-in generation on one end of the spectrum and then the abolition movement on the other end, they represent pretty different um, ways into uh, essentially enduring um, oppression and, or maybe rather, fighting oppression. So anyway, I thought this was a really um, thought-provoking piece uh, and hopefully represents um, not even necessarily a baton pass between generations, but kind of a collective uh, kind of mindset shift. Number seven, the definition for the term Kmart realism, also called dirty realism, via my friend, former editor, and avid reader, Mallory. Maybe I'll just read a little bit of the definition of Kmart realism, um, which I didn't put in the uh, newsletter, but might be fun. Okay, I'm just going to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so take with a grain of salt, but Kmart realism, also termed dirty realism, is a form, form of minimalist literature found in American short fiction. It is defined as a literary genre characterized by a sparse, terse style that features struggling working-class characters in sterile, bleak environments. These short stories represent and reproduce the disintegration of public life and the colonization of private life by consumer capitalism. A related definition describes the genre as American fiction that is characterized, among other things, by a fascination with consumption venues and brand names. Um, 
I don't know why I just found this really interesting. Um, sorry, I always call things interesting. I used to be made fun of that uh, at Manor Pillar. Fun of for that at Manor Pillar. Um, I need a new uh, adjective. But anyway, um, I think I just was kind of taken by this because I recognize this as a tool for storytelling and I had never kind of heard it explained as something so specific. So I thought I would share it. Okay, uh, number eight, a lint touch of sea salt dark chocolate, which is the best chocolate bar, with which I finally convinced Avi it is better to let chocolate melt in your mouth than to chew it, an argument I didn't know I'd ever have to make. Number nine, this sobering fact. This is a tweet by Shaniat Chowdhury, which is a um, man running for Congress in New York. Um, and it says, of the 37 states that painted Black Lives Matter on their streets, only one state ended qualified immunity. And then a quote from Malcolm X, which says, the white man will try to satisfy us with symbolic victories rather than economic equality and real justice. Number 10, Nicole Hannah-Jones' New York Times piece, What is Owed? It is Time for Reparations, which is a thorough and heartbreaking long read. I thought this is a great companion to uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations, which ran in the Atlantic, I think, back in 2014. Um, Hers is kind of places the uh, the demand, the urgent demand for reparations in context with everything going on right now. And um, I found it really comprehensive and thoughtful and well done. And um, I think it's, it's really worth a read for anyone who's new or even just passionate about the idea of reparations. Number 11, an uncountable number of photos from the Instagram page of Studio Nicholson, but especially the unseasonal styling trick of wearing visible leggings under other types of pants. You kind of need a visual aid for this one to understand, but um, check the newsletter if you're interested. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's nothing revolutionary, but I found them really beautiful. Number 12, the depressing and fascinating piece by Anna Wiener for The New Yorker about ghost kitchens and the future of food. Um, if you're not familiar, ghost kitchens are essentially um, like warehouse kitchens that are um, producing food for a bunch of different restaurants through online ordering services. So um, they might be, if, you, if, you, if you're, you know, looking on Seamless or Grubhub and you see a bunch of restaurants you've never heard of, it might be because they are really digitally constructed fake restaurants that are really just being produced all in one kitchen. Um, that's not always what a ghost kitchen is, but that's kind of the type of ghost kitchen that this piece is focusing on. And um, I thought this piece was really well done, especially because um, she shines a light on the kind of insidious way that entrepreneurs will sort of frame a um, idea as being um, for the community or, or somehow altruistic um, when in fact they're usually kind of sacrificing community for profit. So um, yeah, not the uh, most uplifting read, but um, super informative and interesting as, as it applies to the food industry. Number 13, an article by none other than Wallace Shawn about why he calls himself a socialist, which offers an interesting and memorable framing of the topic, even if I'm not fully aligned with his thinking. Um, if you're not sure who Wallace Shawn is, he's the one who says inconceivable in that really specific way from um, The Princess Bride. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's like a really reliable reference or only a few people will get it, but um, I personally think that's his most uh, crucial role. But anyway, um, 
I really appreciated this piece. Uh, it was all about, um, it was it was actually quite apolitical considering the headline. Um, it was more about just kind of the human condition and the way that um, kind of his theory of acting, which is that everyone contains tons of characters within them and is even playing a character in their real life, um, led him to um, a new way of seeing the world and the way that there really was no difference between him and, say, a man begging on the street, except for the circumstances they were born into and, um, you know, the sort of brutal uh, whims of a, of a market-based system that, that lifts up some and, and keeps others down. So I thought... Um, I thought it was a a really worthwhile read, um, if only to just think about the weird ways that we ourselves are playing characters um, in our everyday lives. Um, I said that I'm not fully aligned with his thinking because I didn't totally buy into the assumption he made that that somebody in a lower wage job would necessarily prefer to be doing his job. Um, I just I felt it was a little elitist, but. Um, but ultimately, I think he's he's very well-intentioned, and I really like the ideas he was um, pushing. So, a good read. Number 14. Two microdoses of mushrooms, which brought me closer to this line from The Idiot by, the Elif, or by Elif Batuman, which is a book I just read. Quote, Math is a language that started out so abstract, more abstract than words, and then suddenly it turned out to be the most real, the most physical thing there was. Um... I was in Maria Hernandez Park uh, in Bushwick when this happened. I was just looking at some trees and I'd actually forgotten that I'd taken any mushrooms, but um, I started noticing the way that all the the leaves were shimmering kind of in harmony with each other in a tree. And I I thought it looked um, so uniform and uh, almost digitally created. Um, It just sort of highlighted the way that um, nature can be kind of geometrically perfect in... uh, in some ways, I don't know. It's, it's very much a stoner thought, but it was nice to kind of get in touch with nature. I had been in a, in an internet uh, anxiety spiral for weeks before that, and it was a nice moment. And last but not least, fifteen. It would be unethical to admit my very first Mike's Hard Lemonade, um, plucked from obscurity in my parents' garage. It was there for who knows how long, but um, I actually was pretty into it. So <laughs> call me a Mike's hard girl. I'm sold. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Um, let me know how you liked reading or sorry, listening to Maybe Baby. And if you have any suggestions, uh, hopefully the quality will improve as I get access to better tools. But for now, um, I feel very acquainted with the hem of my dad's jeans. So um, if nothing else, I at least have learned a lot today. (laughs) Okay, bye.